0: Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Delvidova and this is the Delhi Podcast. The show features people I find interesting in the world of sports and entertainment, health and fitness, business, and startups. We'll discuss a wide range of topics, including things like self improvement and growth, personal journeys, pivotal career moments, and much more. Thanks for coming along for the ride remember, if you enjoy this content, be sure to subscribe to The Deli Podcast on Apple or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. All right, let's get started. All right, welcome to The Deli Podcast. Very special guest today, uh, Nick Crocker, who is general partner at Blackbird VC in Australia. Nick, thanks for coming on.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: And also... Uh, thanks for your mentorship and and all the advice you've given me so far and introductions into the vc world it's uh it's been awesome but um can you tell me a bit about your current role at at blackbird and and what it looks like on the day-to-day
1: yeah absolutely so actually before we get into that i was as you said that i was trying to think well when did we first meet and i remember I read an article about you being interested in investing in the Australian Financial Review and I literally sent you an email through your website. <laughs> so one of the best uh, emails through a website I've ever sent. Yeah, so Blackbird Ventures. So we are uh, a venture capital fund. We're based in Australia. We have offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Auckland. Um, we exist to supercharge Australia and New Zealand's most ambitious founders. And uh, the Blackbird was founded in 2011. And I was actually the third, or second or third, I should actually find that out, but one of the first three founders that Blackbird ever invested in. And then when I, the company that, that Blackbird invested in was called Sessions, it was a digital health coaching startup. Um, we got acquired by my fitness in 2014. And so we became the first Blackbird company to ever be sold and then return capital. So it's been an interesting journey because I got to know the Blackbird team uh, as a founder first and really got to experience what it was to, to, to be in that Blackbird community um, and got to know Nikki and Rick and Samantha and Joel, uh, who were the first four, four members of the team really, really well. And uh, it was pretty cool to come home um, in 2017, uh, came home and, and, and to join the Blackbird team and now to be a partner and um, be a big part of um, this sort of current wave of, of entrepreneurship in Australia is, makes me really proud and I'm really proud of, of, of what Blackbird, the role Blackbird's played in it.
0: Yeah, it's really cool that it's kind of already come full circle for you. How how did you get first get into uh, tech and, and startups?
1: Yeah, it was um, a very circuitous path. So I grew up in Queensland, like 45 minutes outside of Noosa in the, in the hinterland. Um, uh, so there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurs um, where I grew up. I, I honestly, I didn't even really... I didn't really know what an entrepreneur was till I was in my early 20s. Like I, I, I had always just, I just didn't have really any exposure. But I think the first thing was we got the internet in you know, the early 90s and to be um, sort of so remote, but to be able to connect to all the music in the world and just all the information in the world from my little dial up modem um, in Queensland, just sort of set my mind on fire. So that was when I was a, a, a early early on as a teenager. And so I just I kind of like, I fell in love with the internet and primarily with, with music. So like I was the kid that I used to go to the library and I would um, like rent out Rolling Stone magazines, like old copies just to read the music reviews. So I was just obsessed with music from the youngest age. And then when I got the internet, it was like, oh, I can, like I can just find out about all this music and there's so many communities and forums. So I sort of just fell in love with what the internet could be and what it, what it could mean to, to someone like a kid like me. But I never really conceptualized that um, you could, like you could make the internet, you could build the internet uh, until much later. So I studied law at university. Um, I was a journalist or through university and I had a column uh, in the Sunday Mail, which was a paper in Queensland. Um, where I would profile um, it was called the Y files I was profiling like inspirational generation Y people so like poets politicians puppeteers sculptors artists just anyone that seemed interesting I would just like write to them and try and write about them in the column so I f- found out about these these entrepreneurs and I thought oh they seem interesting i go write a story about them. And I just it was one of those moments in life where you just sort of realize what you've been all along. You know, I, I was, I met these three guys who worked out of this old substation. Um, and I was like, oh, like my whole life I've been one of these people, but not realized it. And so I think I was 24 or 25 at that point. And then very quickly joined a startup and then started a startup and then sold a startup. And then, you yeah, know, that's sort of the last 10 years has just been this, or 15 years has just been this sort of super acceleration through being a startup founder, being an operator in a startup, and now almost full circle being a funder of startups.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting how that column got, got you in and, and to meet your, kind of people
1: that that's interesting yeah so it was interesting because at at the beginning of doing that column it was sort of came from a place of a little bit of a lost place and so I remember the sort of thesis for me doing the column or pitching the column was I don't know what I want to be so I'm going to go and meet people who know what they want to be and try and in a way I was trying on for size the the job that they were doing and the way that they described it and so like I remember meeting young politicians, thinking like, "Oh, politics is an amazing place to to have an impact." But just sort of remember being in this sort of local member's office, just thinking like, "Oh, this is way more grim than I thought." Or <laughs> I remember I remember meeting a jeweler who's sort of internationally recognised jeweler, and just thinking like, "Okay, there's like the level of creativity that this person has, the sort of intensity of her creative output, like." that's not, I would love to be that. That's not me. So it's sort of like trying on for size all these different, different roles and different things that people did. And then when I, when I met these entrepreneurs and they just had this spirit of, um, I can do anything and I can do it now. I was like, Oh, that's what I want to be a part of. And yeah, it's been my whole life has oriented to that ever since.
0: No, that's really interesting. And I think That's probably good advice for for young people if you don't know what to do and try to get connected to people that know what they're doing and and find out and try out some some different things. And it kind of skips me to a question I was gonna ask you later on, but uh, I'm actually talking to uh, my old high school, uh, Maryborough later tonight. And if I know there's not one one path to get into technology and, and startups, but how could a young person today growing up out in the country in a town like Maryborough, um, how could they get into the tech world or, or build the skills or uh, connections to, to get involved?
1: Yeah, so it's shocking um, how many people will respond to you if you ask them the right question. And so um, I think there's sometimes a sense that oh, I could never ask you know, that CEO or that founder or that person for, for some time or some advice. But actually like, you know, a well-meaning, genuine, thoughtful question gets a, gets a good response a shocking amount of the time. So one of the things that the internet does is it breaks down the barriers of, you know, could, um, could a kid in Maryborough who's really interested in building go-karts um, leverage those skills up and go and um, join a team and start building rockets? Um, And I use that example, we would we we had a founder come and pitch us yesterday. And um, before his current startup, he was, uh, he was an engineer at a rocket company. But I asked him, like, where did the passion come from? He said, I'm just a kid who loves cars. And I grew up building go karts. And actually a go karts in some ways are more complex than rockets. So I've been I've been in the garage with my dad since I was five years old. So by the time it came to being a rocket engineer, I sort of he built a lot of the skills. So I think sometimes partly it's perception, just that a kid from Maryborough couldn't send an email to you and ask you a question about how to become an investor or a professional athlete. Like I I bet if they did, you would respond. Um, so I think knowing that you, you, you can ask, but also the, the other answer is YouTube. (laughs) Like the answer to every, um, question is either on Google or YouTube and so it's just a staggering amount that you can learn by yourself and um, you know just because you're doing it and I, you know I can say this because I grew up in the obscurity of rural Queensland and, and maybe rural, rural Victoria is the same but um, there's no reason you can't just figure it out and become really great at what you do um, by yourself uh, and the internet enables that sort of one of the magical things that we've sort of forgotten about the internet is that it does unlock the capacity for anyone to do anything I feel like every day I read a story about you know a group of um, young women in Iran coming up with a more efficient COVID test or even at Blackbird we, we um, are big supporters of an organization called First Robotics which gets kids passionate about robotics anywhere in Australia together and, and has them um, do a competition every year. It's, yep. um, I think. I think the the internet makes the world more accessible, and so part of it is just giving people that permission and that knowledge. Like you can go get this. Um, you don't. You don't have to wait to be tapped on the shoulder. Just. Just go for it. And, um, I think that's yeah. That that is one of the the cool things about the world today. That how connected and, and how much knowledge is out there and accessible.
0: Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that. Um, what are some of your experiences on the, on the operating side that, that you now lean on or uh, give advice on to, to founders that you're investing in?
1: Yeah, so as an investor, um, investors are either um, sort of one of three things. Either you are an operator and you come into investing with a really deep operating skill set. Um, you are a founder, and you come up, with, come in with that really deep founder empathy, or you're an investor, and you kind of just, you, always were and always will be an investor. So, on the operating side, it's difficult because my operating um, skill set is now five years old, and the world is just a really different place today than it was five years old, and what worked and what mattered, and and the tactics of five years ago are really not relevant. So. This, the only sort of transferring operating skill sets are, are more like models of operating or um, tr- like strategies of operating. And to be honest, I was never an operator at any meaningful level, you know. I never ran large teams inside a large organization. So, on a, you know, personally speaking, that isn't a skill set that I, re- I rely on. Mostly when I'm having operating conversations, I rely on my networks where I can connect whoever's got the problem with someone I know who actually is an expert. On the founding side, uh, the thing that, that being a founder really helps with as an investor is empathy. So um, there's a trap you can fall into as an investor, which is the same trap that I think um, surgeons fall into. Like imagine you're a, um, imagine you're a knee specialist and all you do all day every day is just fix knees. Like imagine how numb you would become to just like the brutal reality of fixing knees. But for the patient, it's like whether they can walk for the rest of their life It's the one, probably the most important, one of the most important moments of their lives and the volume on the surgeon side can kind of numb you emotionally to um, what, what the, what the patient is going through. And it's a little bit in the same in venture capital. Like the volume of entrepreneurs you can see, um, it can definitely numb your empathy over time, where it's, um, you know, like what the founder is working on is everything to them. And it might be the 15th startup that you'd seen that morning. So, what being a founder really helps with is when you're a founder, you have all these super intense emotional experiences of, um, of just how difficult and hard it is to be the founder of a company really of any size. And you never forget how that felt. And so for me, every entrepreneur that I meet, whether I think their idea is good, bad, whether I think they're working on something good, bad, I always look at them through the lens of just knowing what they've gone through. So one, make the decision to be a founder, and then two, build the emotional endurance and resilience to go through just how hard it is. And so um, I think f- the, that, the, that um, empathy, you can develop it however you want. Um, and there's so many ways to develop founder empathy, but being a founder is probably the quickest and most intense way to understand what it feels like.
0: I think that's really interesting. And I think that's something that I you know, can kind of relate to going all in on a career and spending you know, my, my whole life You know, from when I was a little kid leading up to different moments and how intense, you know, the emotions are when you succeed or fail, uh, have a big loss, get cut from a team, uh, have to deal with injuries. And I think that's something that kind of helps me with that founder empathy you talk about, because I know what it's like to go all in on something and spend, you know, years of your life on something.
1: Yeah, and have have people who are only briefly sort of involved dismiss it or say, "Yeah, that's not for me," or you know, "That's that's a bad startup. I don't want to fund that." Like it, you know how personal that feels when whether it's media or experts kind of say what you're working on is not the right thing like that. Yeah. Maybe as a it's a big burden as a as an investor to to treat founders with the, the sort of respect and admiration I think they deserve.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, one of the things that, um, when, when we meet up, I'm always asking you about, and I've always been really impressed with is your process for scheduling, tracking your time. Um, and you, you have two young kids as well as, as the job you're doing, like, what, what tools do you use? And, um, can you tell us a bit about your process for that?
1: Yeah. It's interesting. There's, there's sort of, um, so the, the, The tactical shallow part of this is that I track every minute that I work. Um, It's really simple. I just track it manually in a spreadsheet that has thousands and thousands of rows at this point. And what I use that for is just um, as a data input for deciding how I'm gonna spend my, like an assessment of how did I spend my time last month, last week, you know, whatever it might be. And then using that as an input to figuring out how I want to change how I spend my time. Because it's a cliche, but it's true that the most valuable thing you have is time. You, you, you can lose money and win it back. You can't win back time. And so underpinning this sort of um, you know, pretty simple spreadsheet is this sort of really profound desire not to waste the time that I'm on Earth, <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was thinking about this um, over the weekend. When I when I was 19 years old, my dad died, and that's a pretty formative experience. That just as you're becoming an adult, to lose your father, and I think part of that what that experience taught me is there's no guarantee that you're here forever, and it made me want to really prioritize what mattered. And it made me know that, um, whether it's my relationship with my wife, Julia, whether it's my time with my kids, there's a, there's, a, there's a part of life, which is that every day could be the last day you live. And so one of the frames of reference for, for my own life is, um, if I died today, would I have any regrets about the time that I spent? And um, when I look through that lens, um, the most important thing in my life—and this is what's important for me—this isn't a this is a personal decision, not a um, not a truth, not a universal truth. But the most important thing for me, because of who I am and the way I'm wired, is that I just want to have incredible, high-quality relationships with Jules and um, and my family, and, and especially my two boys. Yeah. And so in a job like mine, which is sort of infinite, I could work 4,000 hours a week and still not be done with it. I have to be really clear about boundaries so that I, I can switch off and be really present for um, you know, that crazy time. Anyone who has kids will know that crazy time where it's like dinner, teeth, pajamas, story, bed. like. I don't want to think of that as a chore or a distraction from work. I want to think of that as like my purpose in life. And I want to be present and energetic in those moments. And to do that, I have to be really disciplined about how I allocate my time and to be disciplined about the allocation. I want to have really clear data on it. So it all sounds a bit intense for time tracking, which it is, but that's just who I am. And I find it really helpful. And, um, it It really just informs the the way I live my life the way I set goals, and the way I prioritize my my energy because I think a huge part of who you are is where you put your time and one of the if you if you do a calendar audit of the last month, that is more indicative of what you value in life than whatever you say you value in life like what you value in life is what you do and where you put your time and so yeah, I really care about it and and it's a it's sort of a key input and I've been doing it for so long now it's like flossing my teeth like it's just something that it would feel weird not to do it
0: yeah no that's really interesting I'm sure um yeah a lot of people will hopefully start tracking their time a little bit (laughs) because
1: people's first question is always how do like what tool do you use and it's always like oh a spreadsheet that's boring but it's like the 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 input, you know, it only takes sort of, I mean, I track the time it takes me to track my time, obviously. So I know for sure that it's like two, three minutes a day, but it just is such a value. It gives me so much valuable data about whether I'm spending my time where I want to.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Can Can you tell me a, a bit more about Blackbird and, and some of the, I guess, big success stories that you guys have had there?
1: Yeah, Blackbird is an awesome story and, um, you know, I, I didn't found Blackbird. So I could, I, and I was a founder of Blackbird, so I can kind of tell the story as an outsider for most of Blackbird's history until I, until I joined. So um, Blackbird represents this moment in time where there were 10 or so exceptional Australian startups that were just winning on a global stage and no exceptional venture capital firms who'd backed them. So the Atlassian round, um, before they went public, that wasn't an Australian investor that did that. That was Excel. Yeah. And that's sort of a tragedy in a way, because you would think that then Australian company should have had Australian investors that they could have gone to. So there's this great sort of moment in the late, uh, in sort of 2008, 2009, where there's some great Australian startups and no great Australian venture capital firms. So Nikki and Rick basically founded the, the the firm on this idea that Australians can be the best entrepreneurs in the world and they deserve the best VCs, but that, that best VC can be Australian too. And so uh, the first um, few years of the firm was really focused on um, Atlassian style businesses, um, subscription businesses global customers um, you know, no sales team product obsessed and there was just such a purple patch from 2012 to 2014 of safety culture culture amp canva and so many others i i, I named those three because those three are all valued over a billion dollars now um but We were able as a firm to be um, the first investor in all three of those companies and to invest tens and hundreds of millions of dollars into each of those three companies through their lifetime and to build really profound relationships with each of the founders of of those companies. And so that's the first wave of Blackbird and um, uh, starting around 2015, the 2014 I should say. We started to see that the best founders were coming to us with ideas that often involved um, uh, what we called frontier technologies. So, rockets, lidars, self-driving cars, um, and we we almost evolved the firm to to um, to kind of support that kind of founder, which is completely different business, completely different set of challenges. And that's really dominated our investing over the last um, two or three years. And then I would say in the last year, um, the two themes that we've become obsessed with, um, one is alternative protein. So this idea that um, 10, 15, 20 years from now, the world will not be eating meat from animals, it'll be eating meat alternatives. And so a quarter of our last fund was in alternative proteins really? and uh, healthcare has become a really big area of interest for us um, both direct-to-consumer healthcare and healthcare where artificial intelligence can meaningfully change patient outcomes so um, i think that, you know the themes that you'll pick up on there is we're not um, just a SaaS investor or an investor in the best founders whatever they're doing and we're, we're a full life of the company investor. So we don't just do seed or just do series A, we try and build a relationship where at every round, ideally we, if, if the founder and, you know, if the company is is kind of deserving of it, we can step up and, and lead that round. And um, yeah, so we're, we're almost a decade into the journey and, it's been amazing. Um, and I, it's, I think Blackbird has really been the part of a huge movement of Australian entrepreneurship. Um, and I think we will look back on this time really proudly um, because so many of our smartest minds in, in terms of both Australia and New Zealand are turning their, are turning their attention to building companies. And um, Blackbird's a huge part of that. It um, makes me really proud.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. And it's really cool that you can be there kind of every step of the way at every round and really build those super long-term relationships with with the founders. What, what are some of the strengths and I guess advantages that Australian founders have um, just by, you know, being Australian? I know on the basketball side uh, in the NBA, you know, we're always regarded as good teammates, hard workers. Uh, play team basketball. Is there something similar that Australian founders are typically known as?
1: Yeah, I don't know if I mean Australians, um, particularly in the US, uh, are generally well regarded. People always have stories about an, an Aussie they met that they loved. Um, so like, there's a little bit of, of positivity there. I think what's maybe not so obvious is if you're in the US, there are some pretty well-trodden pathways to becoming a startup success story, which is um, you go to Stanford, you join a tech startup, and then you, you leave that tech startup and raise venture capital to run your own startup. So there's this sort of pedigreed founder class um, that is just so evident. And like when you hear VCs talking to other VCs about companies, they'll always say, oh, she was an engineer at Apple and then she did her own startup and she went to Stanford and did whatever, whatever. There's no Australian version of that. Like there's no university for startups. There's no, um, you know, Alaskan is definitely emerging and as as a place that you can go and um, kind of sort of build skills, but there's not like a really clear path. So Australian founders come from everywhere. Um, So I think like in our own portfolio, you know, I think about um, Adam Gilmore, who was um, a banker for 20 years and then started a rocket company. Or, um, you know, even Melanie and Cliff at Canva, they started out um, printing yearbooks for schools and from that blossomed Canva. And so I think What I love about Australian entrepreneurs is they they always start out somewhere else. And so they build this sort of toughness and resilience because there's no sort of smooth pathway that kind of just guides you into the opportunity. Like you really have to grit and fight to find the opportunity. And there's a humility um, because no one is anointed or, um, uh, yeah, there's there's not sort of this anointed founder class. It's just a group of kind of, gritty underdogs who is deeply passionate about what they do. And that's becomes a superpower over time in building a company. And um, I, I just love that. And I love the humility and the sort of humbleness of the founders that we all get to spend our lives with. And um, I don't think the world really realizes that, but that's to me, the special strength of Australian founders.
0: Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's really cool to hear. Um, and then I guess, is there anything Aussies in general need to improve on or, uh, as you know, a, a country of founders to, to keep competing on the world stage? Is there anything that when they go from, you know, growing the company in Australia, try to take it to the U S or overseas? Um, yeah, just to draw another basketball parallel. Like when I came over, I had to work on my foot speed and, quicken up uh my handle because people are just more athletic over here is there a um company or founder equivalent to trying to take it to the global stage
1: yeah I mean it's so obvious um there's a big part of Australian culture which is self-deprecating humor so in Australia talking yourself down and sort of you know, diminishing your skills a little bit in other people's eyes is sort of that's a, that's a good thing to do. Like we reward culturally, we we reward we culturally re. <laughs> it's a tongue twister. Yeah. Just we we want our, We want we want our athletes. We want our heroes to be humble. Um, when you try and trans translate that self-deprecating humor to the U.S., it just doesn't translate, and people think you genuinely are talking yourself down and if you're talking yourself down you mustn't be any good (laughs) and so um i saw a tweet i think yesterday from one of the partners at one of the other australian firms and he said the same business in the hands of an american would be would be pitched twice as well um for most australian founders Um, so there's definitely a um there's that um you sort of got to step in and and uh, be the American dream when you're pitching to the US and and not you don't need to be humble um, you don't need to hold back you don't need to be quiet about how ambitious you are you need to just turn the volume on all of those up to 10 and just let it just let it out um, and that's really uncomfortable for Australian founders I think sometimes yeah um, but you you you'll quickly learn <laughs> because you'll just see how 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 poorly self-deprecating humor lands with most USVCs. And you'll see how strong the competition is in terms of the story they're telling about their businesses. And uh, the best founders will just find a way.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I guess this this leads me into a quote that you put out in, in your uh, newsletter or, or blog, which can be found at nickcrocker.com. Substack.com we'll put a link to that. But uh, thank you
1: for the thank you for the pump up.
0: Uh anytime. Um but uh this uh and you have a lot of a lot of great posts, but this quote um that you put in there from Sam Altman kind of really stood out to me and it I guess goes a little bit to what you're talking about there, but he says Uh, A big secret is that you can bend the world to your will a surprising percentage of the time. Most people don't even try and just accept that things are the way that they are. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because when I read that, I was like, yeah, like, that's right. Like, you can, you can do that. And I think it's um, a good, always a good reminder
1: yeah and you know that to me that that origin that idea originates in the steve jobs stanford commencement speech where he says everything around you was built by someone no smarter than you (laughs) and uh it's a really hard thing to at first to wrap your head around because i think growing up um i don't know if this is true everywhere but you're trying to get this sense that other people build the things we use and that Companies and products and whatever else, but then you re- as you come onto this side of the of the table as an investor, you realise that just normal people build all the things that we live our lives on, and even these um, these founders that have insane amounts of success, they are outliers in many ways, but they're definitely they're definitely just they're they're not smarter or they're not um, they're not aliens, so they're just people too and it's it's kind of liberating or in a way to realize just that you, you can do anything if you just decide that, that, that you are you have the entitlement to go and do that and uh, I, lo- I love that sense and it's especially important I think for Australian founders because you know we're an island a long way away from everything now, most people don't. When, when you tell people how long it takes to fly from Melbourne to San Francisco, like they just can't even fathom being on a plane for that long, but growing up in Australia, you're that far from everything. And so it's especially important and relevant to Australian founders um, that, that you can, and you, 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 can, you can do anything you want, anywhere you want. And um, like, I, I just think about your story sometimes, um, cuz like I know where you grew up in rural Victoria and the idea that you would go from there as your starting point and then go and be an NBA championship winning point guard on you know be- beating the most successful regular season of team of all time like that's c- crazy but also you did it and like you're just here and you're just like a- you're just a person <laughs> and that's like that that should give hope to a lot of people.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's. I mean, everyone always looks up to other people. I know I, you know, had my heroes growing up. Uh, obviously, sporting wise, and um, any article or different thing I could read about them to try to learn something to, that I could, you know, put into my own game or routine or nutrition or recovery. Um, I always held on to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know we're almost uh, running out of time. So two, two last questions. Um, tell us about your most recent investment and uh, why you're excited about it.
1: Yeah, there's a few, but I'll, I'll talk about just one. It's a company called Eucalyptus. Um, Eucalyptus is a healthcare company and um, their mission is to be the most trusted healthcare company. And they have launched three brands so far in the healthcare space. A men's health brand called Pilot, a women's health brand called Kin. And they're about to launch a, um, a skin brand called Software. And I, I grew up, um, I'm the son of a, um, of, a of a doctor. Uh, I'm married to a doctor. I ran a digital healthcare startup. So some way or another from the day I was born, I've had um, healthcare and the, the power and impact that good healthcare can have sort of just um, uh, all all around me in some way. Um, I founded a, a healthcare startup which I think was um, was a middling success, but never had anywhere near the impact that I hoped it would have. When I was I was at my fitness pal for three years after the after they acquired us and. I saw how you could you could use software to impact hundreds of millions of people around the world to live healthier, better lives. And so, I think coming into onto into the investing space, I'm I've always been just waiting for for the opportunity to unlock a founder to go and um, go and make a dent in healthcare. And so, Tim, who's the CEO of Eucalyptus, he and I built a friendship over a couple of years. Um, really talking not just about healthcare but about consumer brands in general. And so when he came to me with the idea for this startup I was just so excited to, to fund him and see what he and the, and the team could go and build. We launched the men's the men's health brand uh, last year. Uh, we launched the women's health brand in January of this year. Eucalyptus on a revenue basis is the fastest growing company that we've ever funded which is, um, you know, one, one measure of success, but the measure of success that really um, makes me like the most confident and the most proud in the company is the user reviews. Mm-hmm. And you can just see that the way that we are um, transforming the healthcare experience for people is, is real. I and mean, we're not talking about 10 reviews that are doctored, we're talking about thousands of reviews that are just organically um, being shared and I just know personally from my own life experiences that delivering great healthcare has such a profound impact. And if you do it, it's very hard to do it well. But if you do do it well, you people never forget it. And so companies just having a, a really amazing impact. Customers are in love with it. And I think Tim and the team are building a direct-to-consumer company in a completely different and unique way. And yeah, just funded them for the third time a couple of months ago um, and I'm really excited to keep going on the journey with them.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. Tim is, uh, I've had the chance to speak to him uh, a couple of times as well and he's just getting after it. Um.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, that's how to describe it,
0: yeah. Really cool to see. Um, the last question I'll, I'll give to you is, what what do you love most about what you do? And I I could tell you could feel it uh, when you were talking about eucalyptus there, but what, what is it that you love most about what you do?
1: Yeah, it's just, it's just a privilege to be paid to spend time with the founders that I get to spend time with. Um, you know, if, if I told you that there was a job you could do where you were basically paid to learn from the smartest people in the world and of course, you you know you help out, you provide capital, you provide support. But really, I think I learn more from the founders that I work with than they learn from me. And to spend your life with people that are having a huge impact, doing their best work, uh, just completely obsessed and um, just so all in on what they're trying to do is so energy giving. Like you wake up every morning excited to see what's in your inbox, what's in Slack, you know, you, um, uh, you just, you, you just, it's addictive to be around that energy and that passion and that obsession. And that's a huge privilege. Most people's, most people's jobs don't, I think, um, aren't as energy giving as that so often. So that I consider just an incredible privilege. Um, and, I, I just love it. I just get up every day. Every day I have so much to learn. This is, this is such a, a big thing to learn that the, the problem of how do you build companies that solve huge problems is like, you could spend a whole lifetime dedicating yourself to that and still be learning on the last day that you do it. And um, so the, the mix of being around really brilliant, wonderful people, and the constant learning curve that you're on, you know, you get to the next level of this this business, and then you realize that there's just a thousand more in front of you, sort of an infinite level game um, is is so inspiring. And um, yeah, I, 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 I honestly can't believe how fortunate I am sometimes to be able to do this job. And so I cherish every day that, that I get to do
0: it. What an awesome answer to finish with, Nick. I appreciate your time and and all your help. And um, I have to have you on again in the future to talk about some uh, future investments. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode as I'm always looking for ways to improve and make the show even better. You can leave a review at The Delhi Podcast in iTunes or within Apple's podcast app. Really appreciate your feedback. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to my podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever else you tune in to listen. Talk to you next week.